2: This is M.I.P. with Mark Thompson. Make it Get woke.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, my guest graduated magna cum laude with a dual degree in history and English from Stillman College in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, her first HBCU. And she got a master's of public administration, focusing on public management at the University of the District of Columbia, one of my alma maters, her second HBCU. Then she received a doctorate of philosophy in political science, specializing in international relations from her uh, international relations, black politics and American government from her third HBCU, another of my alma maters, Howard University. And she has done something that we all knew was coming. It is finally here. She's been talking about it. And it is a great accomplishment for her. Her brand new book is out and available for you. The Congressional Black Caucus, 50 Years of Fighting for Equality. Please welcome assistant professor at Southern University, Dr. Sharice Janae Nelson. Dr. Nelson, thank you for being here and congratulations on the book.
2: Yes, well, thank you for having me. I mean, um, as we've been talking, it has been a labor of love, um, a labor that I feel like has been necessary. Um, It it really pricked me when I posted about the book on LinkedIn and Gus Hawkins, one of the original 13 members, his granddaughter reached out to me and she said, thank you. Um, And it it reminded me why the labor of love was necessary, and why we have to tell our own
0: stories.
1: And is we, folks, we were uh, J- uh, Janae and I were talking right before uh, we started. And isn't it true? There's not been a too too recent book about the Congressional Black Caucus, and definitely not one that is comprehensive in terms of its history. Correct?
2: Yes, there there was a book published about. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus effect on the Supreme Court, and, and, and as far as that is concerned, and that was, I think, in 2011. Um, but the mo- the the only comprehensive book that's been written uh, was by Robert Sny. He's actually um, British, um, and it was written about legislative effectiveness back in 1997. Uh, so I knew it was necessary, um, especially we're having a lot of conversations, Rev, about um the the relevancy of hbcus, the um we're having a lot of conversations around the money where the money should go in this build back better plan um th- that let's throw a plug in real quick that would not have happened without a CBC um who was able to broker both sides of this deal right. um meaning inside of the inside of the Democratic uh, uh party that was having issues trying to get it over the finish line. Yes. Um, there is, we're, we're having lots of conversations about voting rights and voter suppression. And I think that oftentimes when we have these conversations, the Congressional Black Caucus, who they are and what they do gets lost. Um, it gets lost. And when it doesn't get lost, there's a lot of misinformation about who they are, what they do and why they're still necessary in a 21st century um, uh, American democratic uh, process.
1: I would also say, I'm sure you would agree, the Congressional Black Caucus is is not covered well in the media, if at all.
2: Well, that's purposeful. Right. And I and I talk about that in the book. And see, this is the, this is one of the big one of the one of the three points uh, that I wanted people to get out of this book is, number one, the Congressional Black Caucus is functioning inside of a racialized structure. And what we have to understand, and I do, I try to do a good job of doing, giving you a brief history of that racialized structure and how it all is centered around slavery, right? Enslaved Africans is what uh, was where the problem was as far as moving from an Articles of Confederation to an actual uh, Constitution. The the problem was slavery. The North didn't agree. The South was staunch on it. And it it took lots of needling by the British for them to find a way to then get cohesion. Well, the cohesion came around Blacks and Natives. The cohesion from those 13 colonies came around, we are going to make them other, we're going to make them less than. So the entire congressional um, structure that we currently operate in sits on top of that structure because representation is a compromise between a set representation, which is in the Senate, and then a representation that is then based upon population. Population that Virginia fought for because it was a major slave state. So that's the first piece. We have to understand the Congressional Black Caucus is functional, functioning in a racialized structure. That is why you can get an Asian hate bill quickly and you can't get civil rights just as quickly. That is why we'll we'll see other caucuses, other racial caucuses be far more successful than than oftentimes we feel that Black people are in name, I should say, because of the racialized structure. If it has been built where giving you something means the structure has failed, well, then it's gonna be very difficult then for legislators inside of that to then give Black people something explicitly.
1: And I I hear that. in, in spite of being that racialized structure being foundational, if I'm not mistaken, too, that this was, other than party caucuses, this was, it wasn't it not the first caucus caucus.
2: It the, is the first racial caucus. Yeah, It is okay. the first racial caucus in the westernized world. We have to understand, and this is where I get a little agitated with black folks who say, oh, the Democratic Party, they just take us for granted, blah, 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 blah. Let's hold up. At the very beginning of this of this formalization of caucus, they were the Democratic Select Committee, and they made the decision to make themselves a racialized caucus so that they could speak against the party without then being party reprimanded. And so Charles Diggs, the very first chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, says black people don't have a party we have permanent interest. And we understand in a two party system that we have to then access the party to then get to our interest. And so you are very correct. It is the it is the very first rate, every other racial caucus, every other caucus that we see that are not party caucuses that are inside of the house today are birthed from this congressional black caucus.
1: The, the original one indeed. And, and for that reason too, um, in spite of, and I guess this is again, a, once again, the paradox of our experience in America. Right. You know, um, mistreat us, but everybody loves our music. Right.
2: Well, well, to that point, right? To that very point, I argue in the book that without the Congressional Black Caucus, there is no moral compass. Because what we, what we do as Black people every time is, and this is what I tell my students, this democracy, while you're hollering about why you're not gonna vote, this is your democracy. You as a Black person, when you, because it's a racialized structure, when you step up and you say, you're going to hear my interest, you're going to deal with my issues, then you make the structure deal with you and you make it more democratic because it never intended on including you. And let's be very clear, it never intended including women, it never intended including Native Americans or or, uh, 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 indigenous folks. It never included dealing with Hispanics, and that was not how it was built. It was built to serve the interest of wealthy white men, not even poor white men, because if you remember... White poor men couldn't vote at the very beginning. So I want people to understand that this struggle is a structural struggle that they're inside of. And they made decisions very early on not to try to be an activist group, but to practice in what I call active uh, activist legislation. So presenting legislation that they knew was going to uh, rattle the cage, that they knew was going to press the United States about its moral compass. Without them, there is no moral compass. And I show that in the book, how legislation, pieces of legislation after pieces of legislation, after pieces of legislation, that they get passed and that they block let's be very clear because they block a lot of things and that's something that i don't think that we have a lot of conversation about is they're there not to just pass things but to block things that will hurt us
1: moral compass and hence that's why they're also known um as the conscience of the Congress,
2: of the Congress, the Congress, and and that really came mark after their after their push on South Africa, right? We again, I want to give credit to 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 Charles Diggs, right? Charles Diggs, the very first chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, sat on the uh, Africa subcommittee, went to Africa, and then explored all of these things. When we come to the southern region of the of the continent, said, listen, I get. apartheid is real and it's there now we have to put pressure about how we then deal with this and while we're putting pressure let's be very clear that there are larger corporations that that are too entrenched that are there that we can't just pull the plug we have to have a uh two and three and four strong uh, a prong attack. and and to be honest with you we don't give andrew young enough credit for the work that he's done in that regard as well. That those are CBC members, Charles Diggs, Andrew Young, uh, Ronald Dullum. We we don't give them the highlight of what they did to push this Congress to then adhere to the sanctions against South Africa.
1: More MIP after this message. And and even more specifically, overriding the veto yes. of one who is considered a legend, Ronald Reagan. I mean that was that was a major major political f- victory for black people led by the congressional black caucus.
2: Right, and and let's be very clear, they came on with a splash because they didn't attend Nixon's state of the union address and that is how they got um marketed as these bad boys because of Nixon's statement, right? He came out and made a state. They decided they were going to boycott his State of the Union address because he would not meet with them. That put them on the map. That 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 made them the bad boys in the Congress. And what they said is, we will be the bad boys if that means that we are going to be pushing them for the, the, the moral uprightness of this body, right? They are called the honorable. And I argue in this book that we should be. Um that we should be looking at them to be the honorable as they lead it. Now I want to be very clear. These are not gods, right? These are people. Um, these are this is an institution, right? That then has its struggles and its and its issues. And so I'm not in any way posing them as being perfect. What I'm saying is that we have a very different America if they are not inside that Congress.
1: Right. I I obviously we are. We are in a very, very um uh, different place in America. I know too, well, let's do this because the way the book is structured and and you alluded to some of this um, in the struggle for our citizenship, correct? Yes. Um, uh, Talk to us a a little bit, and and this is fascinating folks because we're we're talking Mm -hmm. to a professor as well. So Mm -hmm. we're in class, I love it. I love to learn Uh, and I know you all do too. Um, But talk to us a little bit more about the, the line from the struggle for citizenship to the Congressional Black Caucus and, and what they contribute to whatever semblance of citizenship we may have in this country.
2: Yeah, so I argue in the book that to be in, and this is where my international relations kind of comes in, what what we often under what we don't understand is that the United States was not what we understand it to be today. It was a baby. And it needed to be seen as uh, it needs to be seen as legitimate in the international world, which is basically Europe. And to do that, they then declared, right? They spoke out and said, "You are then violating my natural rights, and we are going to declare our independence to you because of it." Well, now I have to then create a structure that that world is going to recognize. And if we know anything about Westphalian sovereignty, it was a, a it, it was a Christian argument about Protestantism and Catholicism in Europe. And it was settled with the idea of you stay on your side. I stay on my side. Here's a border that says you're on your side and I'm on mine. And we can decide how we're going to practice religion. Well, that is what was mimicked here in the United States. This is a, this is a slave state. This is a non-slave state. You stay on your side. I stay on my side. We then have an agreement. Well, when you do that, then you create citizens of not only a state, like the state of Louisiana, the state of New York, the state of Georgia. You also are creating citizens of a federal system. And what I argue is is that when when the Dred Scott case of 1857 comes out and says that although a slave has traveled outside of the territory, outside of the boundaries of where slavery is supposed to be, that that slave is still a slave in the free area of that of that time of Ohio, then that then means that that black folks had had um citizenship, full citizenship in parts of the country, but not federally. So we may have been, blacks may have been free in Pennsylvania, blacks may have been free in, 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 in New York, but we were not considered citizens uh, at the federal level. Well, now we have a duality. Because I could be a citizen in my state, but I can't be a citizen on, on, on the federal level. And it causes this duality. And so what I argue, and I take people through this historical um, type, type of preference to get them to understand that the Civil Rights Act, uh, well, first off, that the Brown versus Board of Education collapses that sovereignty or collapses that dual citizenship status. And it collapses it because it says that anything that's separate is inherently unequal. That then means separate citizenship. Doing something to Black people in a state is then different. Is is then is then um, not constitutional to do to them collectively, if that makes any sense. And then that is actualized in the Civil Rights Act of 1965, because now we have federal teeth to go after the states that are participating in this dual in this dual citizenship. Right. Uh, And so that is why the Civil Rights Act of 1965 is so important, because it it collapses this dual citizenship. That collapse of the dual citizenship, then a census that happens in 1970 produces a Congressional Black Caucus in 1971. Without then this collapse, right, without without this collapse of sovereignty, meaning that you can't then do something uh, inside of a state to black that you can't then do collectively. Now we have a pathway uh, of then getting a congressional black caucus. And then the, the, the results of that are immediate because we get a black district immediately in Texas. Barbara Jordan, the area that Sheila Jackson Lee is sitting in right now was created right after the 1970 census that Barbara Jordan then served in. And that is why for those to making connective tissues to today is exactly why they're trying to crack the district. And what I mean by crack it is that when they, what I mean by crack it is that they want to break it up so they can make it a swing district so that then they there is not a permanent black member there. And let me tell you why they wanna remove Sheila. Well, if, if and, and I argue this in the book, that after over time, the Congressional Black Caucus understood the only way to beat the structure is to mimic the structure inside of the caucus so that we're prepared to break it. So, and, and I argue in the 111th caucus, while Obama was president, they then decentralized power in the Congress. Congress. They decentralized power in the House, and they do this by the level of seniority that they have of getting on these committees and subcommittees. And Sheila Jackson Lee is one of the most senior members of that Congressional Black Caucus. She's been serving since the 90s. If I crack that district, not only do I have the opportunity of having her out of the district, Uh, Also then free up seniority, which means there's a white member that can most likely come in and then be the committee chairman or subcommittee chairman um, in the committees that she's in.
1: More MIP after this message. And also at this very moment, the the bill she now sponsors inherited, bequeathed to her by Congressman John Conyers, H.R. 40. uh, has a, a recording uh, with a total of co-sponsors plus uh, yes votes, committed yes votes. It stands at about 214, 215. Three more votes, HR 40 um, passes. Uh, right. and, and,
2: and, I, and I think, um, Rev, I think we do not understand or that we have a misnomer about legislation. I wanna put this out as a piece of education. It's a successful Congress if you can get three percent of bills written into law. Three, if you can get three of them, then you've had a successful—you've had a three percent of the bills. You've had a successful con- con- congressional session, and that's a two—that's a two-year time span. In the 111th caucus, seven percent of legislation went. Seven percent of legislation went with con- with the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, co-sponsoring the most bills ever in it, in the history of them, of them as, a, as an entity. And at that point, it was like uh, 43 or 44 years. So when we have this argument about, well, Black folks didn't do nothing when Obama was in office, go look at the record. If you go and understand the structure, you will understand if you are successful at 3% or the average is 3%. For them to be, for them, for the, for when the, the 111th caucus to get 7% of those bills passed into law, it's an extreme success and uh, congressional Black Caucus members co-sponsored the most bills. They understood very early on, Mark, that if they sponsor the bill, it's almost dead on arrival. So their strategy oftentimes is to co-sponsor right that's how we got the george floyd bill when everybody was up in arms about the kente cloth and the kneeling and everybody was all upset i hopped on facebook i said wait a minute karen bass went to nancy pelosi and asked because she understood if we as the congressional black caucus uh sponsor this bill without democratic leadership and without a a symbol Without a symbol, I am not going to be able to get this over the finish line. And that is exactly why the George Floyd policing bill passed the House, was because of understanding who they are in the caucus. I argue in the book that they understood from the very beginning at 13 members that they were the then the disturbing force. I also find it interesting that the country starts with 13 colonies uh, and the Congressional Black Caucus starts with 13
1: members that that is that's that's amazing um you know the other thing too i i find interesting about the congressional black caucus historically is that the way their leadership structure you know most of our black institutions are, uh, you know have singular charismatic leadership until the leader dies, even our churches. I mean, we, you know, folks pass the church for 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, uh, one of my mentors uh, who co-founded the Congressional Black Caucus, Walter Fonroy was one of them. He passed this right. in Bethel for 50 years. From 50 but, years. But, but but there's this, what I've always found interesting and, and I and I wonder if, if this has helped it, to, it has been good and maybe others should model, is that the chair rotates. In Congressional Black Caucus. It's, it's not like there's been one Congressional Black Caucus chairman for a thousand years. Everyone ultimately, um, uh, even unlike House committees, every year or two, there's a and uh, there's a new chair.
2: Chairman or chairwoman. And I will again, if you if, if, if your listeners go and grab the book, there is a comprehensive list of every single chairman or chairwoman in the congressional sessions, because they have them, they're built around congressional sessions and congressional sessions as many people know are two years. Uh, and the chairman or chairwoman sits for those two years. Um, I did not capture the current um, chairperson of the Congressional Black Caucus because Karen Bass was the last one in, 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 two, in the 116th Congress. So uh, the book stops at the 116th Congress. And as we know, we're living history as we as we speak. But I stopped at the 116th because it was a complete, it was a completed uh, caucus, if that makes any sense. And so that's why I stopped it um, there. What I will say about the the rotation, the rotation in many ways was so that um, the members were split up. So at the very beginning, there were there weren't multiple members in in one committee or subcommittee. Right now there's 22 standing committees and uh, the Congressional Black Caucus has saturation in all 22. Well, that's not how they started. So a lot of the rotation had everything then to do with then the members who were in different that were in different committees and subcommittees. If they if I allow them to be chairman or chairwoman, it then shifts the it, it shifts the perspective each time because we're now being led by someone that's in a different um, committee than I am in. Also, it then replicates and to your point, <coughs> excuse excuse me. It also replicates to your point this idea of these committees. Now, let's be very clear the committees that are inside of are, are inside the House, especially, are by seniority, right? So when we think about when we think about this whole thing about the Congressional Black Caucus being this iron fist, or J- Jim Clyburn being this iron fist, not really, because the leadership, as you've said, in the Congressional Black Caucus rotates consistently. Now, I would argue one of the biggest reasons it's more difficult for Black institutions to do that outside is because of the the threat of racism because when new people come in into the leadership positions if racism or if 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 the pastor has then uh, created relationships inside of that city to then to then provide for services oftentimes for our community and then they rotate out it's almost starting the wheel over again with building those relationships then to get the favor inside of the city. And the Bible talks about that, right? About how it is good for the people of God to then have favor in the city. And so that's often the issue, I think, outside uh, in our institutions is that those relationships are built to then push back against the racial structure. And then they use that same longevity then to call it inefficient any, any or ineffective. So it's a double-edged sword. And I think what we have to be cautious about doing outside is um, that we need to allow leadership to rotate about every 20 years. Each generation should have a new leader, right? And we know that generations are built around 20 years, which is why I say to my students all the time, the census was built off of you. Because if we think about this, Mark, if if I want to take account for people, why would I do it at the 10-year mark? I would do it at the 10 year mark because I can catch the slave and her child. If I have a slave that's 13 or 14 years old or 15 years old and has a baby, if I catch the, if I do the census every 10 years, I'm catching her and the baby. Right? So
1: that's, that's, that, yeah, yeah. Do you,
2: do, do you see that? Yeah. And it's and, and let me be very clear. Generations are built off of 20 years. And we know that slaves were having babies as early as 12 years old. So if I then take the count at 10, I then get a two for one. Now, remember, the Southerners did, walked away from the table and said, we don't want a two for one. That's where we get the three fifths compromise, because it's one and a fifth. They said, if you put two slaves together, it's one and it, 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 it's, it's one and they, we're not getting a two for one. And one of the biggest reasons I'm not getting a two-for-one is because I need to count the slave and her child. And so we have to, the structure was really built in many ways around us. And that's why the citizenship piece is big. That's why understanding it's a racialized structure is big. And then the very last thing about it, like I said before, is the, the decentralization of power. The reason the Congressional Black Caucus was able to get Build Better back over the finish line is because they are not a monolith. We continue to say that the Congressional Black Caucus is a monolith. I debunk that in this book. They've never been a monolith. And I've used quantitative metrics that are known in the field to prove this. I've used narrative to prove this. I've shown members who've been on opposite ends of the spectrum. If anybody remembers Mike Epstein, who was from, who was from Mississippi, who was entangled in the, um, in the Delta, who was in the Delta, in the Delta, uh, in the Delta region, and they're over these catfish farms, you'll see that the ideas of Ron Dullum from California and from Mike Epsi were very, very different. And so that's another thing that I think that we have to highlight is that the Congressional Black Caucus, just like Black people. Are not a monolith, and although they have voted, decided to vote in a block to conserve their power, it does not mean that they do not have the bonafides to go to different parts of uh, the Democratic Party and of the Congress, for that matter, to then get deals. And I think this build back better and then being able to get it over the finish line shows and proves that. But we don't see much of much of talk about that in the press.
1: Uh, and so uh, you mentioned what they did in the 111th, what they've been able to do now would build back better. So would you would you make the case that they have, and, and I don't know that a lot of our people are ready to say this or embrace it. We can get into that. But would you say, since you've looked at it qualitatively and quantitatively, that the Congressional Black Caucus at this very moment um, holds as as much power and its significance and as much influence as it ever has.
2: Yes, absolutely. And the rise of that, the 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 rise of that, the stamp of that was in the 111th caucus. Let me be very clear to to your listeners: the Congressional Black Caucus was so dangerous. Newt Gingrich, when he was chair, when he was the um, chairman, <clears throat> I'm sorry, when he was the speaker, Newt Gingrich created rules to stop the Congressional Black Caucus. They were so powerful then. When they weren't at this saliency, I think we're at, uh, at 54 members currently. Even before we got to 54 members, they created rules to stop them. That is why, for those of you that have been have been rocking with uh, Rev, Rev for the longest, you can remember the days when there were meetings and, hear- and, and meetings and stuff on Capitol Hill where the Congressional Black Caucus invited members to, uh, invited constituents to do meetings and to have Legislation Day at the Hill. Well, all of that stopped, right? All of that stopped. And then they started doing at the convention center and then it was no longer led by the Congressional Black Caucus. It was learned by the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. All of that is because of rules that Newt Gingrich set while he was speaker to then stop the power of the Congressional Black Caucus. That's what I mean by racialized structure. They were so powerful in the 90s that they changed the rules. And we as Black people know how that goes. As soon as we get powerful, as soon as we understand how to subvert the system, they change the rules. And I am here to argue that even with the rule change, even with the rule change, they gained a saliency in the 111th Congress that they have not given up. And a key to that, that most Black people do not want to hear or realize is the use of Charlie Rangel on the Ways and Means Committee, who actually sponsored the Affordable Care Act. Their ability to get that piece of legislation, that massive piece of legislation over the finish line, we do not talk about the Congressional Black Caucus's role in getting the ACA over the finish line. The bill was sponsored by Charlie Rangel. So, We have to understand that that was the salient moment. The the 111th Congress is the saliency of when we've been the most powerful and how we carried it out till that and how um, even with Trump in office, they did lots of things to stop legislation, to stop things that were going to hurt um, us as black people.
1: No, that is important to understand. One other thing I I remember, uh, and I wish the Congressional Black Caucus would do this again. Back in the days of Charlie Diggs and Walter Farrow and Shirley Chisholm and all them, every year the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, uh, Dr. Nelson, would uh, release its own budget. It would remember it would you it would do a people's budget uh, uh, to offset whatever the White House was doing. I, I wish they would get back into that.
2: So it's funny that you say that because they do still release that budget. It's just a lot more, it's just not as as, as radical and as celebrated. And they put that budget in a report every year uh, and they've cloaked it. They've cloaked how they put, they do put that budget out, but they've cloaked how they put that budget out because of the vulnerability of the members to my point about the fact they've never been a monolith. If I'm Lucy Bath, Lucy Bath is sitting in the seat that Newt Gingrich used to sit in in Georgia. I think it's District district 5 in Georgia. If I'm Lucy Bath and and I am a Congressional Black Caucus member and the radical budget comes out, then I'm instantly in trouble in my swing district. So now we still put out a budget. It's still there. It's in a report that we issue every February. And so you have to go look for it, but it's still there.
1: I, I I I got you. Uh, yeah, that's that, as a matter of fact, uh, speaking of clogging, Lucy McBath, whom I know very well, c- could not come on because of what you described as a co-sponsor of HR 40. Exactly. But, but she spoke- So you understand like, this
2: intimately, right? right? And this is the thing, Mark, that I think that we lose. We lose the nuance. We wanna paint them with such a broad brush that we lose the nuance here. We do not understand that this racialized structure has made it so that there are missteps that we cannot make. And and I love to tell people when we have this conversation about the crime bill, uh, which I believe was a misstep. And if you look at the voting, they were very torn. If you look at the Congressional Black Caucus voting on it, they were torn about this bill. There was, there, were, there was lots of debate, argument about this bill. It was so it was so contentious, many people abstained. People that were safe, were safe as far as re-election is concerned, abstained from the vote. That's how controversial it was. So was it a misstep? Absolutely. I, I do believe this crime bill was a misstep, but we have to understand the nuances of the fact of where they live, what they're up against, and the idea of this, and this is what's huge, and this is why I dedicated my book to the ancestors, of course, but two in particular, Ron Dullums and Elijah Cummings, and here's why. Ron Dullums understood that by being from California, that he could be the most radical member inside of the Congressional Black Caucus and inside the House of Representatives. The same way that Elijah Cummings understood That what I'm fighting up here is a principality. I'm not fighting a person. I'm not fighting people inside of a constituency. I'm I'm fighting a larger power that has created a structure to insulate themselves and to allow them to win at all costs. And so we have to understand that when we step up to the plate, that it's not going to happen tomorrow. Do you know how many times the Congressional Black Caucus had to put up a a piece of legislation to make Martin Luther King's birthday a holiday? Do you know how many times we had to put up legislation um, to then make the Congress, to make the caucus adhere to the sanctions that the UN put on South Africa? Do you know how many times we have to put up legislation? Again, let's remind listeners or remind people that are watching this. Legislation that becomes law is only successful, it's only 3% of those bills become law, only 3%. So when we have folks that say, oh, we didn't get the George Floyd bill, or oh, we didn't get HR 40, or oh, it's not gonna happen. It will. It will happen with what I call legislative activism. When we call our senators, when we call our House of Representatives, when we put pressure, then they as the caucus can come back and say, see, this is what the country is saying, And this is why we need to act. And it gives them the teeth of doing things and the urgency. So we have to understand the nuances. We have to understand that this is, like I tell uh, my students, that life is black and white and gray gray is what slides.
1: (laughs) Right, right, right. right. Life
2: is black and white, right? It's, It's black and white, but gray is what slides. And what we have to understand is that in that caucus, just like inside that congress there's
1: lots of great well yeah and and so lucy is is one of the committee yes votes i was speaking about even though she's not a co-sponsor and and correct and that's now i can vote on the bill right
2: i can vote yes on the bill i just can't co-sponsor the bill
1: now i'm glad you brought up the 94 crime bill because i think that's also an example of what you're talking about constituents let's be honest um members of the black caucus were in districts where black folk, we just got through talking about church folk, nobody on this. Is folks were talking about the 94 crime bill, of course. Um, This is in a moment where people were afraid. They didn't understand this drug thing. They definitely didn't understand crack. And there were m- m- members of the black community, their constituents who said, we got to do something about this. Folks going home from church, getting hit in the head and whatnot. I mean, that, that was, you're right. It was conflicted. It was complicated. But, and, and Mark, but if you look at the
2: inner cities, if you look at the inner cities, almost every inner city, almost every inner city congressional black caucus member voted yes. Yeah. It, it, and, and this is where we have to understand uh, what we have to really lean into the fact that there are rural black people. Let me, that When we talk about rural people all the time, we, are, we often leave out black people. We have to understand in the South, majority of black people still live in the southern states. And we're watching a reverse migration happen as we speak. So when we're having these discussions, we have to think of the conservative nature of southern states. We have to think about the fact that all 13 members were from the north. Right at at the at the original 13 members were all from the north, and it took the 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 uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1965 to even get southern members into that caucus. We have to understand that by getting southern members into that caucus, we're talking about Bible Belt folks. We are talking about folks that do not understand this drug thing. We are also talking about people who do are not as free as far as admitting or even participating in the use of drugs. We have to understand that. Black folks in California, Black folks in New York, Black folks in Detroit, crack was seen almost as a party drug. It was seen to be like a quaalude almost. And so we have to understand even the different cultures of using drugs inside of our communities. This is why I feel that um, the book was so necessary to get us to understand it's a little more nuanced than we think. And that crime bill was to me the tension point that showed how they will how they will crack us and how they will break us. They used rules. Uh, remember this this crime bill was was passed during the Newt Gingrich years. We have to remember how they'll use rules. How they'll go after us with what Jay Z calls the Alphabet Boys. How they'll go after us with with uh, three letter organizations to put pressure on us. We have to think about how. Um, though how those members get reelected, you have to remember that congressional Black Caucus members um, are are fighting for incumbency. Incumbency is almost guaranteed for white for white members. It's a toss up almost every time for Black members, uh, regardless of where they are. Uh, and, and so those are all things that that play a role in what legislation is voted on, what can be co-sponsored and what's not co-sponsored. Um, and then who actually can can wave the banner of we did it or we won, because even that is important. We know that in the black community, especially symbols are important. And when it comes to crime and it comes to drug, the symbol was that we were criminal and that we were dangerous and that we, as a people needed to do something about it.
1: Lastly, um, there, you mentioned 111th Congress. There was, was also at times, um, even if it wasn't as much out in the public some tension between this venerable institution the congressional black caucus and the obama white house all the time and and maxine waters in fact famously said you know in in, in an audience uh in front of a, an audience how um um you know you all want us to hold president obama accountable but then you will criticize us if we do Talk to us a little bit about it about about that tension. I mean, and he was a former member of the Congressional Black Caucus. So certainly, t- to hear you describe the lack of of things being monolithic within the caucus, then why would they be monolithic between the caucus, the legislative branch, and the executive branch? But talk to us a little bit about that. About yeah. So
2: so I also argue, and I, and I and argue in the book that black folks, when it comes to the federal government, are always looking for the Great Emancipator. Right. They're always looking for this great emancipator. And oftentimes it is then of the use of the bully pulpit, which is the presidency. Uh, and that is really how, again, how the Congressional Black Caucus has gotten their name to fame, right? The veto against Reagan, um, not you know, the 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 boycott of Nixon. Um Speaking out against presidents has been their way of being able to force that president to use his bully pulpit for their interest because they were so small and they had not had not decentralized power. So when I come to power and my uh, modus operandi of how I usually draw attention to my issues is to attack the president and now that president is black and I'm black. We have to rethink the strategy. And there was lots of people, um, there was lots of tension about the strategy that was used. So the reason I want to I I I am describing it or starting there is I think oftentimes we do not understand that there had been an a way of operating, how the Congressional Black Caucus had operated, and then the election of a black president then um changed in many ways how they operated. Now it doesn't mean that they were not arguing behind the scenes. They were just very careful not to allow the media to get wind of it or to try to then cause uh fractures. Now we've been said as academics, right? We've, as black political scientists, we have been heralded that we have not criticized Obama a- 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 as we should have, right? Anytime you are black and it comes to, um, Barack Hussein Obama, the question always is, are you being fair and impartial and are you pushing him like you would have pushed other presidents or or even researched him, researched him the same way? And I would say that just because there was an outward fighting doesn't mean that there wasn't inward fighting. Because the Congressional Black Caucus understood from the very beginning. That we are going to fashion ourselves after this Black Declaration of Independence that comes out of the meeting in Gary, Indiana. We can't we can't put our names on it. We can't sign it. But it's it's in that spirit that we will that we will carry out what we do, and that then means full citizenship for Black folks. where they have the same rights that their white counterparts have, and that means then pushing against a legislative agenda of any and every president. And they did that just not as publicly as I think people would have wanted them to do.
1: Right, right, very well said. Folks, the book, be sure to check it out, The Congressional Black Caucus, 50 Years of Fighting for Equality, really the first book of its kind, chronicling the legacy and the history of the Congressional Black Caucus and its powerful impact on our democracy and society. The Congressional Black Caucus, 50 Years of Fighting for Equality, my very special guest, Dr. Cherise Janae Nelson you know and I, again I love it when people say they are gonna do something a lot of us say oh, I'm gonna do something and we don't finish it and then it takes forever to get it done and but she has done it uh, I know you feel great about it we feel we feel great about you getting it done Janae. so congratulations and thank you for joining us
2: thank you so much for having me
1: all right thanks for getting woke and listening to make it plain please remember to listen like and wherever you get your podcasts please give the show a five star rating And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been Made Plain.